turn to Galatians chapter uh, 2. We're going to get there in just a minute. Uh, I will say this morning, we've got a lot to get through. Um, and we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Galatians. But we're actually going to start in Acts chapter 10. So go ahead, turn to Galatians 2, put your finger in there, put the, a bulletin or a slip of paper in, Acts, or in Galatians 2, but turn over to Acts chapter 10. That's where we're going to start this morning. One of the things that I always want to do is I want to try to help us myself included, understand how the Bible all fits together. Because I think for so many of us, when we read the Bible, we read like a book at a time, right? So we'll read or we preach through the book of Galatians, and we just kind of focus in there, and we miss out on how everything is interconnected, right? Even though they, they, you have these individual, what we call books or letters or whatever they might be, they're all interconnected. And we somehow miss that, and we see you know, we read through the book of, of kings, maybe, but we forget to notice which prophets are connected to which kings and what the prophets are saying at the times of the kings. Or we read through the book of Acts, and we read about all the journeys of Peter and Paul and the way in which the church was moving forward with the gospel. And then when we read the letters, we don't seem to, we, we don't connect them to the story as it happens in Acts. So what I want to do today is I want to connect those things, right? I want to look at something, and we'll get to it in Galatians, but to do that, I want to set the scene by what's happening in Acts, because actually what happens in Acts is going to inform what Paul says in Galatians, okay? Does that make sense? So that's where we're going this morning, and like I said, I got a lot, so I'm already talking fast. I apologize for that. But you're going to give me grace, right? Yeah, there we go. All right, let me pray, and then we're going to dive into it. So let's pray. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 10. That's where we're going to begin. We'll start at verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice set, told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so go, uh, get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, 
let's get, let's get our minds around what's happening here. We find Peter. Peter is making his way towards the city. He's making his way towards the city of Caesarea, which is kind of up in the northern region of Galilee, right along the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. He's there, and he's getting hungry, hangry, something to that effect, because he has a massive trance while he's up on the rooftop. While he's in this trance, he sees the sheet coming down out of heaven, and the sheet is filled with animals of all kinds. We're told that there's, there's animals, reptiles, and birds. Now, now, what we know is that Jewish people, uh, according to their dietary laws, have certain animals that are clean and certain animals that are unclean, right? And it's things to do with whether they have split hooves or full hooves, right? So like a cow is clean and it's got a, it doesn't have like the split hooves like, like a pig has, which I'm still unsure of how a bacon-producing animal can be deemed unclean. But this is something that God and I will sort out through the course of many, many prayer sessions. Anyways, so he sees this sheet filled with all these animals, clean and unclean, and then a voice says, get up, Peter. Peter, kill and eat. Now, also going along with the dietary restrictions and laws is that the animals have to be killed in a particular way to be deemed clean, right? They have to be killed in a particular way, that's, and then they have, the blood has to be dealt with in a particular way, and the food has to be prepared, for, prepared in a particular way. But this voice doesn't say any of that. It just tells Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Peter, being a really good, devout Jew, says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that because I've never let anything that is impure cross my lips. Because the moment you allow an unclean food, right, the moment you, you, you have some of that salty goodness in your mouth from the pork belly, now you're unclean. Right? And so now you've got to become ritually clean and all of this sort of stuff. The, the moment in which you participate in the mishandling of blood, now you become unclean. And so Peter draws a line. He says, no, I have never done anything or eaten any food to become unclean. But the voice says, do not call anything that I have made unclean. Sheet goes back up to heaven. Peter's left there in that trance, and he's trying to figure out what this means. Downstairs, there's a knock at the door, and there's some men coming from uh, Cornelius. These men were sent by Cornelius because earlier in chapter 10, God had come to Cornelius and said, hey, send for this guy named Peter. So Cornelius does this. These men show up, and they say, hey, we're looking for Peter. An angel told Cornelius, our boss, that there's someone here who has something that he ought to listen to. So Peter invites these guests in. Now what happens in the rest of chapter 10 is that Peter ends up going with these men to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman. He's a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. But Peter goes to his house. He goes into the house and he begins to preach the gospel. As he's preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes down on those who are in the house. Peter recognizes this and then has everyone in the house baptized. Right? Now, all of this, as I said, happened up in Caesarea, up in the northern side of Galilee, right along the coast. Turn with me now to uh, chapter 11. Just turn a page over. We're going to Acts chapter 11. We're going to see what happens next down in the south. Verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, now I know Jerusalem's in the south, but they always talk Jerusalem is high ground. It's like on a mountain, right? It's the mountain of the Lord. So they always go up to Jerusalem. Doesn't matter where you're coming from, you're always going up to Jerusalem. So Peter went up to Jerusalem, and the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men 
and you ate with them. Okay. So Peter, when he gets to Jerusalem, is criticized by the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, for associating with the Gentiles. Now, Peter defends himself throughout chapter 11. Peter defends himself and essentially says, like, all right, guys, I saw the Holy Spirit come down. Like, what choice did I have in that matter? And they were like, oh, that's, that's a good point. Okay, we're going to allow this. Like, that's the rest of chapter 11 in a nutshell. Um, Cliff Notes version. But what I want us to focus on is the criticism up front. You went into the house of Gentile men. And you ate with them. The criticism centers around this idea of eating. That's what scandalized the circumcised believers. Now, if you were to go into the Old Testament, you're going to find all kinds of laws about dietary restrictions, about what you can eat and can't eat, and about what, uh, how that food is prepared and how it ought to be killed and all that. But what you will not find is any law stating that a Jewish people or a Jewish person should eat with a Gentile person. There's no law saying that that's not allowed. Right? What, what began to happen as, as the Jewish people sought to keep their covenant with God and obey the law, the teachers of the law expounded on these rules, these laws, and, and sort of, you have the law, right? Don't eat this thing. And then they expand it out so that you don't come close to breaking that law. So the law is don't eat unclean food. Don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Don't eat food that's not had its blood drained in a particular manner. All of that sort of stuff, right? And so what the teachers of the law said, well, in order to make sure you keep that, one of the ways to be sure about the food you eat is to not go and eat with the Gentiles because you have no idea where that food came from. You don't know how those animals were killed. You don't know how that food was prepared. You don't know whether or not it's been sacrificed to an idol or not. So just don't even go there, right? It's the whole idea of stepping so far away from the law that there's no chance of breaking the law. On top of that, there are prohibitions throughout the Old Testament about intermarrying, right? You don't want, like a Jewish person was supposed to marry another Jewish person. And so one of the ways to ensure that you are not tempted to marry a Gentile was to never eat with Gentiles. Just like limit the amount of contact you have with them. This whole idea is, it is the slippery slope argument encased, right? The law is, don't eat, uh, only eat clean animals. But the practice is, is like, well, we don't want you to eat, you know, don't eat with Gentiles, because if you have a meal with a Gentile, the next thing you know, you're going to be laying on a bed of bacon. Like, that's just what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm really taking the bacon thing, like, I'm taking a long ways today. So anyways... Like, it's, it's, it's total slippery slope argument. Now, when Peter then, so, so, so this is like what's going on around it. Peter then hears this voice like, don't call anything that I've made clean, unclean. And then he's invited into Cornelius' house and he preaches the gospel and the Holy Spirit comes down and they baptize them. And apparently he has a meal with them. And this scandalized the mind. Now there's one more thing happening in this. You have to understand, and, and, and this is what's different than our culture. We don't have a culture that's centered around meals and table and hospitality, right? Like we like to eat our meals uh, in the car out of a paper bag rather than like sitting around and making it this massive event. 
But for, for the Middle Eastern mind at this time, to share a meal is to practice deep hospitality. It's to show someone honor. It's to show them respect. And in many ways, it's to invite somebody to your table and then to accept that invitation and dine with them at their table is this, is this mutual recognition that one another are equals. I'm no better than you, you're no better than me, we're sharing a table, we're equals. We're eating off the same dishes. We're we're sharing the drink, right? And so when Peter goes into the house of the uncircumcised Gentile, and he eats with them, he is communicating in that moment, there is nothing that separates us. Circumcised, uncircumcised. There's no barrier. The idea of a second-class citizen does not exist at this table. You, a Gentile, me, a Jew, we're equal. This is the scandal. And so what the early church had to do was had to constantly wrestle with how the Spirit of God continued to invite in those who the Spirit of God was not supposed to invite in. Right? And what's so interesting is, is like the, 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 the practice of the law is like, here's, this, here's the law, here's the covenant, and you can be a part of the covenant if you who are on the outside adhere to the rules of what it means to be on the inside, right? If you get circumcised, if you practice the dietary restrictions, if you ho- uh, hold Sabbath, if you do all of these things, then you can come on the inside. But what the early church had to wrestle with was, despite that, that being their understanding of how religion worked, the gospel kept ex- like expanding outside of it. And not, in, not just, it invited people in, but it, it sort of wrapped around them and said like, okay, now that the kingdom of God is in your midst, do you want to be a part of it? Right? Like it didn't say to Cornelius, Cornelius, you've got to get circumcised. You've got to practice Sabbath. You've got to do any of that sort of stuff. It just simply said, Cornelius, you hold tight in your house. The gospel's coming to you. And it expands. And it goes out. And it begins to surround those who were once on the outside and says, do you want to be on the inside? Oh, by the way, it's already here. Yeah. This is the gospel. This is how it works. This is how it goes out. And this is grace. And this is Peter's experience. Peter has this experience. And, and that experience is going to make what comes in Galatians so surprising. So turn with me now to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, starting at verse 11. When Cephas, which is the Greek, it's Peter, right? When Peter, it's another name for him, when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? 
Okay, so remember how all of this comes up. Peter is in Caesarea, has this, has this amazing experience in which he goes to the house of an uncircumcised Gentile, eats with them, has the community in Jerusalem who are circumcised believers go, okay, the Spirit did this. I guess we have to be online with this. Then Peter goes up to Antioch. He's in Antioch. At one point, he's dining with the Gentiles, but then some people come from Jerusalem. And we don't know if they're exactly from James, like if James had to support behind this or what. There's some, there's some debate about this. But what we know is we have some circumcised Jewish Christians come up from Jerusalem to Antioch. They see Peter dining with Gentiles and they begin to pressure him. That's not right. You can't do that. They need to be circumcised first. And they begin to push back towards the law. And Peter caves. And as a leader of the church, when Peter caves and begins to separate himself from the Gentiles and only eats with Jews, the other Jews follow him, including Barnabas. And so Paul comes to Antioch and he sees Peter doing this and he says, you you hypocrite, because you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile. In other words, you don't even follow the whole law. You don't even believe anymore that the law is what saves you. You believe and salvation through faith and grace. Like, this is what you've bought into. And so you, you, by practicing this, are going back on what we preach. You know this. You are a Jew, but you live like a Gentile. How then can you force Gentiles to live like Jews when you yourself don't even believe that these things are what save How can you separate yourself from your brothers and sisters? How can you begin to put this hierarchy back in place where there are second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, where there are people who cannot mix together? All of this is wrapped up in Paul's rebuke of Peter. And then Paul uses this line on Peter, and he says that you, Peter, and these other Jews who are, are doing this are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, at first blush, that's completely easy to understand, right? They are failing to act in a way that reflects the truth of what the gospel says, that we're all equal. That we, it, when we are welcomed and saved by Christ, that we become one family, brothers and sisters, equal and in, in, uh, heirs to the inheritance, Right, so we can understand that, but, and we can understand that it was right for Paul to even rebuke Peter, but I think what begins to get tricky is when we just slow down and we begin to reflect on, okay, well, what we just talked about last week, then this gets tricky. Because last week we talked about the difference between the grace and law, right? And we said that for us as human beings, there's a natural pull towards law. We understand law. Law makes sense to us. It's, it's, it's the bent that's hardwired into our hearts, that there is a right and a wrong, and that doing the, the right things are good, and you become praiseworthy and, and worthy of being accepted, and when you do the wrong things, then you ought to be rejected, and you ought to be judged, and all of that sort of stuff. And so we have this pull away from grace towards the law. And now we have Paul rebuking Peter for his actions. In essence, Paul is saying to Peter, you did wrong. This was not right. 
There's a rule to be followed here. How is this not a new law? How are we still operating in grace at this moment in which Paul says there is the truth of the gospel and you ought to live that way, right? You should live this way and not that way. You should do these things and not this thing. And this thing that you just did here, Paul, is wrong. How are we not slipping back into law after just talking about the wonders of grace and the, 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 the need to resist that inclination to go back to proving yourself worthy by what you do or do not do. We're going to have to nuance some things here. And this nuance, I understand, is going to be razor thin. But I believe that it's absolutely necessary. So let's just start by defining grace, right? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is an undeserved gift. Or another way to say it is grace is an invitation to a new reality. From the get-go, grace is an invitation to new life. Come, all you who are thirsty, and find water that will meet your needs. Come, all you who are hungry, And feed on bread that will never run out. Come home, all you prodigals, and be welcomed. Come, all you who are blind and receive sight. Come, all you who are lame and walk. Come, all you who are weary and find rest. Grace. Grace is an invitation, and it never makes demands for us to live a particular way. Grace never says, you must do this before you will be accepted. Grace never says, you must prove yourselves worthy. Grace never says, I'll come to you, but first you must transform. Or if I do come to you, then you have to transform. Grace simply invites, come on, come, come on. There's more. There's something different. There's something better. And you can, you can have it. You can receive this. It's yours. Accept it or not. Live in it or reject it. Whether you know, like, whether you know it or not, grace is all around you. And there's nothing you can do, Right? Because grace has died for you. So anything that we might offer up to try to pay for grace or earn grace or whatever, all of that just seems paltry because grace has died for you. Grace has died for you and grace rises to new life and then it invites, come. Taste and see. Come on. Now contrast that with law. Law is not an invitation but a demand. You must live this way. You must, must lever, uh, measure up. You must know, not only know right from wrong, but you must do right. And you've got to avoid all the right things. And you have to prove yourself worthy. You have, right? This is law. Law demands, grace invites. And so what Paul is doing here with Peter, when he comes to Peter and says, you are not living the truth of the gospel, he is not saying, Paul, you failed to measure up. Paul, you're not good enough. Paul, you failed. Paul, you are outside of the grace of God. He never says that. You see, Paul, Paul doesn't imply that Peter has fell from grace. 
You can't fall from grace. Grace is all around. Grace is the, the air that we breathe whether we recognize it or not. Oh, no, no. Peter doesn't fall from grace. If anything, Peter falls from faith. And I'm borrowing this from, again, my, my, I'm going to call him my good buddy. I mean, we've never met and we can't. He's passed on. But Robert Farrar Capon, he's my good buddy when it comes to grace. He makes this distinction between falling from grace and falling from faith. You see, Peter has not fallen from grace. Grace surrounds him. Grace still accepts him. Grace offers new life. But, but he has fallen from faith because faith says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. And he falls from that idea. He falls from the faith that circumcision has any meaning within the kingdom of God about position or necessity. He falls from faith of his own experience. He has this profound spiritual experience in Caesarea and he falls from faith that says nothing that I have made is unclean. We can't fall from grace, but we can fall from faith. We can fall from faith that our worth is dependent, or we can fall from faith that our worth is not dependent on what we do or our own righteousness. And when we fall from faith that our worth is not dependent on what we do or is not dependent on our righteousness, then we start to do all of these things to try to appease God to try to somehow write the ledger, right? We worry that somehow we're going to do the thing that overpowers the blood of Jesus on the cross. Or, or maybe like this, we, we read that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us. No height, no depth, no, no angel, no demon. There's nothing that can separate us from God. And in faith, we hold true to that. But then we fall from faith and we begin to think, yeah, but this thing can. This thing can separate me from the love of God. And it doesn't mean we've fallen from grace. It just simply means we've fallen from faith. You know, when I think about this distinction between falling from grace and falling from faith, I actually think of Peter. So Peter is in the boat with the disciples. And he looks out and he sees Jesus walking on the water. Right? And so... Peter calls out and he says, if that's you, Lord, let me walk out to you. And Jesus says, all right, come. So Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water. But it seems like as soon as he realizes that he's walking on the water and, and he's not supposed to be able to walk on the water, he begins to sink. And as soon as he begins to sink... Jesus reaches out his hand, grabs Peter, pulls him up, and what does he say? Oh, you who do not deserve grace. No, no, no. <laughs> You're like, wait, wait, really? <laughs> oh, you of little faith. See, grace was still there. Grace reached down and grabbed him. Grace still saved him as he was splashing around in the water. Grace was there. It's, what, it's Peter's faith that failed him. Peter was lacking faith. Peter was lacking faith there, and Peter was lacking faith when he denied Jesus three times by the time that the cock crowed. 
And Peter was lacking faith when he saw that the Jews and the Gentiles weren't, he was hearing this, weren't eating together and he had this pressure to not eat with them and so he separated himself and began to only eat with the Jews. Like this is all evidence of Peter not lacking grace but lacking faith. Faith is the means by which we accept grace. And faith is the means by which we work out with fear and trembling, the implications of grace in our life. Because if grace is real, and if grace is something surrounding us, then, then it does have implications for our life. There is a truth to it that impacts the things that we do and we don't do. But that doesn't mean we fall. It's like we, in faith, are going to believe that this way of grace is real. And so because of grace, if all are equal in Christ then I better go and sit with my Gentile brothers and sisters. If all sins are equal and all sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, then I better make it safe for people to confess their sins. Not, not just the ones that we deem acceptable because there are acceptable sins within the church, right? There are sins in which if we're sitting around in a small group and, it, and we've done all our stuff and we're like, okay, it's prayer time, but before we do that, does anybody have any sins that they'd like to confess that we can be praying for? Like there's certain sins that are acceptable in that moment and then there's other ones where like, dude, you just opened a can of worms, why? Right? Like, or, or ones that'll cause the group to kind of pull away. But if I really believe in grace, then it better be safe for every sin. To be brought out into the open. If, if, if grace is real and Jesus Christ reconciled the enemies of God to himself, like if that's true, then I better be willing to have a dinner and enjoy fellowship with those who hold differing political ideas than I do. Right? And if we fail to live into these gospel truths, we don't fall from grace, but we fall from faith in grace. We begin to reveal the places where we don't quite, maybe we don't believe grace is really that powerful or that important or that pervasive. And we step away from that. And the reason that this all matters is because because when Jesus came, he announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. That the kingdom of grace was here. And it was doing something new in our midst. And Jesus said that when you begin to live into this kingdom, when you begin to Live the reality of grace. You will have life. Abundant life. Right, this is what we've been invited into. And when we fail, or when we fall from faith, we miss out on the experience of that life. When we refuse to dine with those who are different than us, we miss out on the wonder of connection across boundaries that normally separate us. When we make it unsafe for people to confess their sins or to share what's really weighing down their hearts and their minds, we miss out on seeing a tangible expression of grace at work in, 
and around us. When we fail to care for the poor or make room for the stranger, we miss out on the possibility of dining with angels. Right, see this, when we fall from faith and we step away from the implications of grace in our life, it, it isn't like we are now condemned to something. It's that, that what, sh- what that sin is doing is actually shrinking the life that Jesus tells us is possible. It's warping that abundant life. It's perverting that abundant life. It's, it's robbing us of it. And so when we rebuke one another, or when we, when we correct it isn't that we're applying a new life, but we're re-inviting. Come on, come on back. Come back to the abundant life. Come back to experiencing the way it's all, it was created to be. Let me try to explain it another way here. In Philippians, Paul encourages the followers of Jesus to think about what is true and what is noble and what is right and what is pure and what is lovable and what is admirable. And then he says, and then do those things. Think about those high characteristics, those virtues, those, those things that fall into those categories. And then whatever those things are, do those things. And so there Paul is highlighting the, the, the standards of the kingdom life, the standards of what it looks like to follow Jesus in that abundant life that we will experience. And he's saying this is what it could be. This is what you will feel. This is what you will experience. So, so it's a standard, right? It's, it's a norm. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Now oftentimes we call, in more common language, we call those norms, those high ideals, morality, Right? Morality is about standards, it's about norms, it's about the way things are supposed to be. The mistake that we often make is by taking those norms, those standards, and saying, you have to keep those in order to be saved, right? So morality, which is a good thing, becomes the means by which we are saved if we are a moral person, if we do the right things, if we stay away from the wrong things, right? If we're moral, and we take the standards... And we make them something more than they ought to be. Morality. Good. It points, though, to the standard. This is what it looks like to live the abundant life that Jesus promises. Grace, then, is something that almost trumps those standards. If you want to put that quote up on the screen, my buddy... Capon, he says this, morality by its very nature must be concerned with norms, with standards, whereas grace by definition is concerned with persons. Grace is a refusal to allow standards to become the basis of their reconciliation or their condemnation. In other words, morality is the norm. It's the standard. It's the this is what it looks like to live into the kingdom of God. Grace, though, is the thing that says whether or not you do those things perfectly, whether you fail, does not matter. Grace is the means by which you are reconciled. The standard doesn't determine whether or not you are worthy of reconciliation or condemnation. Grace is. So, so let's, let's try to use an example many of us would be familiar with. 
And hopefully this will help us even flesh out the, the idea that we're talking about here even more. Let's say you go to the grocery store and you've got your kids with you, right? Which is always exciting. So you're in the grocery store and you're going through and you're filling up your cart and you're piling, you're like you got, you got one kid sitting in the seat suck, sucking on a sucker and you're just hoping that they're not, you know, like also sucking up germs, but they're sucking on their sucker, and then you've got another one in the cart, and they're surrounded by food, and you're piling it in. You've got another one that you're trying to keep from running away from you. Maybe you, like, tie a string around the wrist and tie that to the cart. I don't, like, that would be, actually, I would love to see that at the store sometime. But anyways, like, you got that going on. You're just trying to wrangle the kids and fill the carts, and you go through the, you know, the checkout lane. You're putting all the stuff on the thing, and then they're ringing you up, and you put the bags in the cart, and you get out to your car, and you unload all the groceries, and you're putting the kids into the car, and you go to the last one, and you see them, and they're sitting there with a candy bar in their hand, the wrapper is open, and chocolate all over their face, and you know you did not pay for that candy bar, right? Now maybe, I mean, you're a good parent. Everyone in here, you're a good parent. So you've had conversations with your children about what is right and what is wrong. Maybe this child is even old enough to know what stealing is and that you've had the conversation that stealing is wrong. But now you're looking at your little thief and you're wondering what you're supposed to do with them, right? In that moment, do you apply the norm, the standard, and use that as the basis of what they deserve? Are they only worthy of condemnation because they broke it? Or does grace decide your response? Let me ask you this. Is it possible to show them grace and to remind them and call them back to the standard? Is it possible to reiterate that grace or that stealing is wrong and they should not do that and reassure them that they are loved? and they belong, and that nothing could change your love for them? Is, is that possible in that moment? Like, yes, I, I'm really hoping you're saying yes, but there's not a lot of you. Like, maybe we got to do something. Like, next week, come to church, we're going to talk about parenting. All right, like, yes, hopefully that's possible. That's what we're talking about. I mean, so often when we think of the words rebuke and discipline, it's these... I mean, they're just, they're hard, they're hard words. And I, and I mean that like they're, they're rough. They've got edges to them. But they're simply an invitation to come back. Come. Are you weary from trying to, to prove yourself? Are you weary from trying to measure up? Come, come, come on back. You feel like you've gone too far away and you feel guilty about that? Don't worry, don't worry. Grace, grace, come on back, come on back. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come, all you who are hungry. Come on back. Life abundant is waiting for you. It's, it's the kingdom life. Grace. It's still here. Come on back. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the grace that surrounds us, that amazing grace. That grace whose depth we could never plumb, we give you thanks. 
We pray that we would be a people who have so experienced grace that we live out its implications in all of our lives. And, and not because we think it's some rule or something that we've got to do in order to appease you, but because it's the abundant life that you promised us, that we truly believe that what you say is that you have invited us to something better, to something more, to something deeper and more beautiful and profound and truthful. May our hearts be stirred for that. May we want that so that we would be connoisseurs of grace. How oh, may that be true of us? May this idea that in some ways is so foreign to us because of the world we live in, may it become the idea that consumes us and will not let us go. And as the people of God, may we be known as the people of grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.